0: Oh, good morning, everybody, and Happy New Year. My name is uh, Frank. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Church Arcadia. We are glad that you are here. Uh, Redemption Church is gospel-centered and outward-focused, and we believe that all of life is all for Jesus, and our, our hope and prayer is that we would embody the gospel in all of life in our uh, community here. A um, couple things. Um, first of all, our... Are these empty seats or are they being held for people that are coming late? If there are any empty seats, um, there's a a few. There's a few up here. Right here where I can keep an eye on you if you want to come up here. That would be nice. Um, Anyway, um, so we still have um, a few empty seats. We've got some things going on back there. Uh, First of all, I want to acknowledge that um, I, I just personally feel so blessed every time I come here on Sunday and no matter who is leading us in the music, no matter who's out of town and who is still here and who is willing to serve and lead us, it's just awesome. I love live music, and, and I know that the purpose of what Ashton and Jesse did this morning was not uh, to uh, uh, fill us up with live music, but rather to lead us. But I will tell you, I got to be here a couple hours early for their rehearsal, and I got to just sit in here and listen to them play, and it was awesome. And so thank- I want to thank them for leading us this morning. It's really good. Uh, what else? Oh, this morning we had that prayer walk around the campus this morning that Malia organized and led for us. That was awesome. More than 50 people were here uh, to do that. And then some of them actually stuck around for the service instead of going to breakfast. So that was really nice uh, as well. So um, we are going to kind of uh, do a capstone in a sense of our Advent series in which we talked about uh, the incarnation of God through Jesus Christ. And we talked about how that incarnation happened through the perspective and the um, the will of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. How all three were <clears throat> uh, were um, involved in that. And then next year uh, on on the first Sunday of the year on January seventh, we're gonna we're gonna do what we've done for the last I don't know eight or nine years, and that's Tom Schrader's outline where we look at the past year and try to quantify how well we did last year. And then we look ahead, we give you an outline and a grid for evaluating next year and look ahead and try to figure out how we're, we're going to make 2024 the best year that we've ever had. But we are going to do that a little bit differently. Uh, and and uh, in the process of doing that outline, we're actually going to introduce our January series, which is going to be rooted... Um, in uh, the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. And so that's what we're going to do in January. And then for February and March, during those eight Sundays leading into Easter, we're going to be doing the book of Esther. But next week, we do, we'll we do that prior year, uh, past year, uh, present year, uh, Schrader outline. But it's just going to be different, and I think you'll be encouraged by that. But today... If you have your Bibles, or your phones, or your pads, or your memory, if you'll just open to Colossians chapter 1, that's where we're going to be today, and our reading is going to come from Colossians chapter 1 as well. It's going to be verses 15 through 23, if you will please stand for the reading of God's Word. So Paul writes to the church at Colossae, he, now that he is Jesus, He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh, by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if you indeed continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Thanks be to God for the reading of his word. You may be seated. So we're going to look at Colossians chapter 1, because uh, this is also about the incarnation of God through the Son, Jesus Christ, and Paul makes that case here. Now, to give a little bit of context for this morning, um, when Paul writes this letter, he's in prison in Rome towards the end of his life. Um, It's in the early 60s, probably the year is 61 AD, and Paul is also in his early 60s. He's later uh, eventually uh, executed outside of Rome probably in the year 65 A.D., after having been imprisoned a couple of times. um, He was in prison uh, because he was proclaiming the gospel, the good news of Jesus, and he was telling people that Jesus is Lord. And especially in that context, but certainly throughout history, Anytime that you go to somebody and say that uh, somebody of power and say that somebody else is actually the Lord, that somebody else is actually in charge, that somebody else actually has authority, that tends to upset kings and dictators and Caesars and governors who claim that they are your Lord. And that's why he's in prison. Now he hasn't been convicted yet. He's in prison waiting for his trial before Nero, who was the Caesar at the time. But while he's doing his time, he spent about two years there in the early 60s before he was uh, vindicated and released, but then eventually brought back later on in the mid-60s for the same thing. But while he was doing time this first time in prison in Rome, he writes some letters. And among them are his letters to the church uh, in Philippi, the church in Ephesus and the church in Colossae, among some other letters. And we're going to look at Colossians chapter 1. And so the question comes up, I think this should be a question anytime you approach any document in the Bible, any book in the Bible, the first question should be, why was this written and who was it written to? What's the purpose? What's the why? And the reason why Paul wrote to the church in Colossae is because there were false teachers, proclaiming a false gospel that was not rooted in the divinity and the atonement of Jesus Christ. And in the process, these false teachers who had infiltrated that church in Colossae were teaching that, number one, there is a hidden gospel. You've heard about the gospel of Jesus Christ, but that's not the real gospel. There's a hidden gospel that you have to be smart enough to know, smart enough to be able to discern And the only way you can get smart enough to discern this hidden gospel is to follow and pay the false teachers. Isn't that convenient? Isn't that convenient? Here's the second thing they were teaching. They were teaching that the world's philosophies and humans' traditions are as good as or better than God's Word. Nothing new. That's been going on for millennia. And then finally, number three, they were teaching that Jesus isn't God. What you've heard that Jesus is divine, that he's God, that he's part of the Godhead. No, he's not God. He's just a man who is a pretty good teacher. Again, something that's very common today. Oh, Jesus was a good teacher, but he wasn't God. Well, he taught that he was God, so how could he be a good teacher if he's not God? I don't understand that philosophically. But Paul writes to set the record straight about Jesus and the gospel, and to encourage them in their faith. So there are going to be two parts of my comments today. It's a real flyover. We're not going to go too terribly deep. We're going to go quite briefly. But uh, the first part is going to be Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. I didn't read those verses. I will in just a second. And during the, uh, the time in Colossians 1, 1 through 14, we're going to speak primarily to those of you who already believe in and trust Jesus, And then we'll look at what I just read, Colossians 1, 15 through 23. And really, those verses speak primarily to those who don't really necessarily know Jesus or know Jesus yet, but would like to know why we would say you might consider placing your faith and trust in Jesus. So, if you have your Bibles, let's look at those opening 14 verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, Notice that Paul doesn't uh, say, hey, I was smart enough to figure this out. He just says, no, God revealed this to me. It's the will of God that I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. And Timothy, our brother, Timothy was apparently visiting Paul in prison at the time that he wrote this letter to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. This is common for Paul to start his letters, with one exception. It's common for Paul to start his letters after the greeting by praying for the recipients of the letter. And so he says, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, there's the inciting incident for why Paul is writing this letter to the church in Colossae. Epaphras, who is a leader in the church of Colossae, had come, traveled all the way to Rome to visit Paul in prison and give him a report on what's going on in the church there. And after he gives this report to Paul, Paul says, I need to write them a letter, which Epaphras will then carry back to them. giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So you look at this These 14 verses, in verses 1 and 2, you notice that Paul, right out of the gate, just starts encouraging the recipients of this letter. He wants to encourage them. He says, you're very faithful. And then he starts praying for them. And in verses 4 and 5, you see that he calls out from the report from Epaphras. He calls out their faith and love and says, it's obvious that your faith and love are a living response to the beautiful gospel hope that you have as a result of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his victory over death three days later when when he rose from the tomb. So those of you who believe, those of you who are in Christ, the question comes up, are you a living response To the hope that God has given you by the gospel of Jesus. Are you, as Paul describes in Romans chapter 12, are you a living sacrifice because of the finished work that Jesus has done for you? Reconciling you to the Father through his forgiveness. Are you seeking after him by reading his word and by loving your neighbor and by hanging out in a home group at at Redemption Church, we call them RCs, Redemption Communities, and by serving others? Are you doing any of those things? Doing one of those four things is better than doing none. And I know that there are some of you that are trying to do all four, but are you doing any of those things? And then you look at verses 6 through 8. I just want to reread these. Verses 6 through 8. He says, Which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, Our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Paul knows all of these things about the church in Colossae because one of their leaders, Epaphras, has brought word to Paul in prison about the good things that are going on in their community as well as the challenges. Epaphras also is the one who brought the message to Paul that there are false teachers that are really creating confusion and havoc in the church. And so Paul decides to start on a high note in order to set up uh, his first important message of correction, which comes in those verses that we read at the outset. And we're going to get to those in just a minute. And, And those verses are about who Jesus really is and why that matters. But before that, Paul tells them That again, this is the second time, he says, I'm praying for you. And look at what he's praying for them. He's praying that they would have spiritual wisdom and understanding. It's the same thing he writes to the church in in Philippi. Exact same thing in chapter 1 of Philippians. And he says, I want you to have spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you would walk with wisdom in a manner worthy of the gospel. Paul also says something similar to this in Ephesians chapter 5, where he says, listen, you need God's wisdom and you need to submit your will to God's will if you're going to be able to navigate successfully this dark and corrupt world. You cannot navigate this dark and corrupt world with foolishness. You need the wisdom of God in order to do that. And that foolishness that Paul refers to would be believing in the world's philosophies and human conjuring. And Paul would say that that is spiritual, intellectual, and emotional suicide to do that. To place your faith in human philosophies and human rhetoric and human conjuring rather than in God. And then furthermore, Paul writes in verses 10 through 12 that walking in this divine holy wisdom will result in three important things. It will result, first of all, in bearing fruit. And what does that mean? It means a life that blesses not only yourself, but also all others with whom you come in contact. Believers and unbelievers alike. Second of all, walking in wisdom will result in knowing God better and better. Now, I would think for those of us who know Jesus, we would want to know God better and better. Scripture tells us repeatedly that the best way to do that is to seek God's will and wisdom through his word and through faith community. And then finally, the third um, uh, wonderful result of walking in his wisdom is that we'll be strengthened in our souls so that we can endure patiently in this world by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us by living in thanksgiving and joy. You know, living a life without thanksgiving Is living a life filled with discontent, perceived victimhood, entitlement, and arrogance. I just, I have to, you don't have to raise your hand, but do you know anyone who is discontent, who walks around with an entitled mentality? Just because I exist, everybody must do for me who is arrogant. I, I would define today's arrogance this way. Uh, it's the person that never has a thought entered their, enter their mind that they don't believe must be expressed in some way, shape, or form. Thank you, social media, for that. Or complaining about their victim status. Anybody? So arrogance, entitlement, complaining of their victimhood, discontent. Anybody have anybody like that in there? They're a lot of fun to be around, aren't they? Are you elbowing anybody next to you? Don't do that right now, okay? Okay. And then finally, in verses 12 through 14, Paul reminds the church at Colossae and us that because of what Jesus has done for us and because we've embraced him, we have an inheritance into eternal life in the kingdom of God. Uh, Peter writes about that in 1 Peter, verses 3 through 9. It's a wonderful passage. You should read it. He also says um, that because... We are in Christ. We've been moved from the domain of darkness to the dominion of the blessed and the discerning. So we experience transformation. And finally, he says, our sins are forgiven. We are redeemed from the corruption, exploitation, and perversion of this world. So if you're a believer in Jesus, that's all for us. And that's not bad. We have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. We've been transformed. We've been transformed out of the domain of darkness, into the blessed and the discerning, and our sins are forgiven. Now Paul turns to this important issue that the false teachers have been trying to dismantle. And by the way, this false teaching is still prevalent today. We deal with it today. It's alive and well today. It is a constant in church work today. I'm going to reread it, starting in verse 15. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So now we're going to talk a little bit more to people who maybe don't have this foundation of Christ, who don't necessarily believe, and and maybe try to answer some questions that you might have. First and foremost, to understand what Paul is saying, is that Jesus without a doubt, is the king and ruler over all things. So again, this is Paul talking about the incarnation of God. God became flesh and dwelt among us, and that's why his atoning sacrifice is sufficient for us to be reconciled to God. And this language might feel a bit outmoded today, but nevertheless, it's true. Paul is reminding his leaders, his readers, including you and me, That Jesus is the king of kings, he's the lord of lords, he is the creator of everything, and he is sovereign over all, and he is the one that holds all things together in his hands. Even as a little baby, he was holding all things together. But Paul also does this to address a problem that is gripping the church in Colossae. False teachers are trying to get a foothold in the church by teaching that Jesus isn't really God. So I'm going to take a few minutes on those verses. Paul lays out his case. In those first three verses, verses 15 through 17, Paul tells us unequivocally that Jesus is God and that in a sense, Jesus makes the invisible God visible so that knowing God becomes less abstract and more concrete. You want to know God? Know Jesus. And he tells us that Jesus is creator. Uh, I Remember during Advent, if you were here for our Advent series, we said every week in the Advent series that all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, were involved in in every activity that God does, including creation. So in creation, God was like the project manager, the Father. He managed everything. The Spirit was the one that hovered. And Jesus, according to what John tells us in the Gospel of John chapter 1, everything that was made, he made it. He's the one that made everything. Paul says it here, he's the creator. And it's not just that Jesus is creator, but he is the sustainer and the redeemer of all creation, including us. It, its I think it was Hermann Bavink, the, um, the Dutch theologian, who, who made the argument. That when you talk about God's sovereignty, his rule over everything, it means that there is not one square inch in this universe that is outside of God's authority. There is not one maverick molecule somewhere in this universe that is outside of God's authority. He is sovereign over all, and it is Jesus that sustains and holds it all together. And then he said that Jesus is the head of the church. Oh, oh! Frank leads that church over there on Camelback. No, 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 it's not Frank. There are four pastors who lead that church over there. on. Ca- oh, no, no, it's not the pastors. They have an elder board. The elder board leads that church over there on Camelback. N- n- no, wrong on all three cases. Stephanie, no, it's not Stephanie either. <laughs> Jesus is our lead pastor. Jesus is who leads us. Uh, We've prayed this all all morning this morning. If God does not build his house, the workers labor in vain. Uh, God, save us. Save the pastors, the elders, the deacons, and the staff. Save us from thinking that we're the ones that can do this without God. That is our prayer all the time. And rooted in that fact is my prayer that it always keeps the pastor, staff, elders, and deacons humble. I just keep reminding myself of John 3.30 where John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, He must increase and I must decrease. We can live and lead Redemption Arcadia with boldness and confidence because the resurrected Christ is in us. But at the same time, because we have that power of the Holy Spirit, the resurrected Christ, at the same time, he calls us to seek to be small. Seek to, you have the power of God with you, but you need to seek to be small. You need to be humble because pride goes before the fall. And by the way, there is great freedom in that truth. It is amazing how many people believe that it is bondage to submit yourself to anything but yourself. And that's just not true. It's counterintuitive, by, but ironic. But by submitting our will to God's will, we experience true freedom in this world. Small rocks and pride walks. How many of you were alive in the 80s? And remember, we used to put those, that little saying, I just wanted to resurrect that 80s saying for the 2020s. <laughs> okay, Kyle likes it. All right, there you go. Small walks, pride walks. That's another t-shirt to add to my collection, all right? And then that second half of verse 18 is also op- awesome. Simply put, as Christ has been raised first from the dead, so, so also will anyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus. So how about it? If there's anybody here who would like to talk to us about that or ask us questions or you have your doubts, uh, whatever it is, we'd love to be able to talk to you. You can find me or one of the pastors or one of the deacons or elders or staff after the service. And then verses 19 and 20 explain that God came and became flesh and he came in the flesh in Jesus so that by his blood that he shed on the cross, you and I could have salvation and eternal life. It's the last and only sacrifice we will ever need. And if that's not direct enough for you, let's reread then and look at verses again 21 and 22. Paul writes, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Paul reminds us of and calls out the fact that because of our natural human instinct and tendency toward ourselves. Uh, the reformer Martin Luther in Latin said, in curvatus in se. Everybody is curved in on themselves. That's the problem that we have. That's our curse, is that we're all curved in on ourselves. And because of that tendency, be, we are hostile to God until the Spirit of God reveals to us our need for a Savior, and that Savior is Jesus. Now, now this is really important. Because God loves us, and wants what's best for us. His son, Jesus, took on flesh and was born here on earth as a vir- from a virgin. So that he could live the perfect life that we could not possibly live. So, and, then, and then die the death that we cannot possibly die. All so that you and I can be presented to God the Father as blameless in our sin. Righteous in his sight and utterly above reproach when we stand before him. It doesn't get any better or clearer than that. That is the gospel. That's the good news of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Uh, You know, research has shown that people generally try to live their lives either by what they call an aesthetic or an ethic. People try to live their lives one of two ways through an aesthetic or an ethic, and and, um, the research shows most people argue it's impossible to do both. It is impossible to do both at the same time. You're either in the aesthetic camp or you're in the ethic camp because they're irreconcilable to live together at the same time. Now, some of you I know are going, well, what does that mean, aesthetic or ethic? Well, let, let me explain. Living by an ethic means that a person lives by some moral code or some law that attempts to mediate their behavior and somehow, for them, define what goodness is. What's goodness, what's right, what's correct, what makes them a good person, what makes them a worthy person. It's an ethic, it's a code, uh, whatever it is. And by the way, for most people, it's a self-made ethic or code. Somebody conjures in their own mind, here's what I think a good person would look like. Here's what I think a good person would do. Therefore, I'm going to have these standards in my life. And oh, by the way, as I break those standards myself, because nobody can ever live up to those standards, I'm just going to adjust the standards to meet my behavior so that I always fall into that category of good. So that's the ethic. Now, in the Christian faith, um, there are Christians who live like that too, who really believe that that uh, their salvation is works-based and works-related. And, and so in the Christian faith, we might call that person a legalist or a fundamentalist. But living by an aesthetic, so that's the ethic. Now, living by the aesthetic means a person lives according to their desires and their whims, that they construct their own reality and nothing else matters, and, and they live by these, these pursuits of pleasure and personal affirmation. And that's what drives them. Their ethic is aesthetic. It's all driven by desires, pleasure, and affirmation. Now, in the Christian faith, we would call this licentiousness, license, or, here's a big word, antinomianism. Now, antinomianism is a fancy word that simply means against the law or without any law or code other than the code of desire and self. Both of these, living a life by an ethic or living a life by an aesthetic, are a form of self-salvation, self-fulfillment, self-redemption, and self-actualization. Did you notice a common denominator in any of those? It's all rooted in self, which means that both of these approaches are also rooted in pride. In pride. And both have a dogmatic self-righteousness about themselves. Both claim to be correct and right and they're dogmatic. The the idea of inflicting that is just dogmatic. Here's the thing about Jesus. The reason Jesus came and what Paul is saying in this letter is that neither of these approaches work and neither of these approaches are why Jesus came. Jesus came to show us grace. Not, not unleash your desires, not, not here's a law that you must live by. He came to say, I am going to do everything that you think you can do, that you are trying to do, that you want to do. I have done it all for you, and now I impute or transfer that to you through the cross and the resurrection, and you believing in that. And that's called grace. The definition of grace is unmerited favor. Now, some of you know what comes next. I always ask the question, what can a person do to merit unmerited favor? Nothing. It's not a trick question. Some of you are like, I think it's nothing, but I'm not going to yell that out. (laughs) Nothing. You can do nothing to merit unmerited favor. It's his grace and his love why he came. That's the beauty of Jesus. He did it all for us. Jesus redeems the self-righteous rule follower and he redeems the self-righteous hedonist. And Paul finishes this section of his letter to the church at Colossae by writing that this is such good news that he went so far as to become a minister, a proclaimer and a shepherd for this good news, this gospel message of Jesus. These 23 verses could be summed up with these four words. Jesus came for you. Happy New Year, Arcadia. May God bless you and show you his favor and wisdom in 2024. Amen.